Okay, so like many everyday expressions, no one's totally sure where holy cow comes from. Obviously, many linguists point east, you know, the whole sacred cows in India business. Some others give credit to Batman and Robin. And then there's a bunch of popularizers. Famously, of course, the Yankees' Phil Rizzuto, whose catchphrase even ended up on a Seinfeld episode. What is that? Ah, Steinbrenner gave him to us. In honor of Phil Rizzuto being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Holy cow! <laughs> and, yeah, just looking at Wikipedia here for a sec, baseball seems to feature dominantly in the holy cow history. I'm, I'm reading here, The phrase appears to have been adopted as a means to avoid penalties for using obscene or indecent language. Okay, baseball in Israel, not so big. But for some people here, holy cows couldn't be a more serious business. This is from an Australian TV show from the late 90s called Animal X. It's an eternal mystery, and the answer to a prophecy. The appearance of an animal said to be capable of changing the world. Just in case you think this is some arcane theory, no, no, no. The Animal X guys clarify that the stakes couldn't be higher. Scholars believe the appearance of a new red heifer portends the building of a new temple. And after that, the Old Testament says God will appear as a Messiah to change the world. If you're not familiar with this sacrificial saga, here's what they're talking about. In the book of Numbers in the Bible, there's a passage about red heifers, which says that the only way the Israelites could purify themselves was by sacrificing a red heifer, a totally red cow through and through, and mixing its ashes with some water. This, the people who believe these kind of prophecies contend, is critical for rebuilding the Holy Temple in Jerusalem and, well, setting the stage for the Messiah. So all around the world there are people trying to breed a red heifer. It's sort of this cattle husbandry subculture which brings together Orthodox Jews, Evangelical Christians, ranchers, cattle breeders, and messianics of all stripes. Rabbi Chaim Richman is originally from Massachusetts, but has lived in Israel for more than 30 years. He's part of the Temple Institute, Machon HaMikdash, which is a private organization dedicated to preparing everything necessary for building a new temple and performing all the biblical rituals. Harps, lyres, priestly robes, altars, decanters. Richman's the one who keeps track of the birth of red heifers around the world. Here he's talking about it in a Temple Institute YouTube clip. You know, every time a red heifer is sighted, we try to stay on top of the situation, we try to be informed. There have been a number of red heifers born in recent years that have become disqualified for one reason or another. That's right. This can't just be any old red cow. Here are some of the things that disqualify these small, rust-colored calves from being the red heifer. A blemish, a nick, spots, a couple of non-red hairs. From time to time, a red calf is born which seems to fit the bill. In 1996, Shmarya Shor from Kfar Hasidim, near the Carmel, thought he had a winner. He called her Tzlil, or Melody. We've put her here in solitary confinement. The other cows will not bother her. And uh, we have not shaved off her horns. She has not been branded. Her ears have not been pierced. This was big news around the world. The Boston Globe reported that Slil was protected by an armed guard in a skullcap. A prominent Israeli columnist worried about the explosive geopolitical consequences of actually sacrificing her on the Temple Mound suggested that she be shot at once. But in the end, it didn't pan out. Those damn white hairs. Then, in early 2014, the red heifer world was once again a buzz. Here's another Temple Institute interview with Rabbi Richman. As you'll hear, the clip was live from the scene of action. So, chirping birds, a running brook, the whole thing. Rabbi, what are we looking at right here? Yitzhak, we're looking at some exciting new footage that we have just received of a brand new red heifer that was born somewhere in the United States. We're not going to be more specific uh, for security purposes. They called her Talia. We're all excited about this one and watching with tense anticipation. But by August, Richmond announced in a short blog post, Talia too was no longer fit for her holy task. A patch of her skin had changed its pigmentation. There was clearly a lot of disappointment, but he isn't giving up. If you really want to know the truth about the red heifer, if you really want to have all the answers, 
You can't. Because God tells us that there are things in this world that are bigger than us. So today, people have all kinds of questions about the red heifer. Who, what, when, where, why. Some of these questions we can answer, some of them we can't answer, and some of them we won't answer. Do we have a red heifer today? Do we have candidates for the restoration of purity? Yes, there are red heifers today. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Our show today, Holy Cow. It's all about the bovines. Cows, buffaloes, calves, everything you can imagine. We've got stories of radical vegans, of expat Israelis in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, and I'm just going to say it, the biggest bovine A-lister of all time. All right, let's begin. Act 1, 269. If you've dined out in Tel Aviv lately, you might have noticed a whole new section on the menu of many restaurants, vegan dishes. Of course this is true in many places around the world, but in Israel the movement seems to be particularly rocking. Before we begin, I just want to say that there are a few pretty graphic moments in this next piece that might be hard for you to hear. Just take that into account. Here's Yochai Meital. When God searched for words to describe the small territory into which he was leading Moses and the people of Israel, he came up with land of milk and honey. Arnon Oshri, a third-generation dairy farmer from Kfar Vitkin, loves that catchphrase. Actually, he loves it so much that he drew a mural of it on the outer wall of his storage house. It's a combination of a cow and a bee. It's a land of milk and honey, so I created a combination of a cow bee. (laughs) (laughs) But if the biblical copywriters wanted to be even more accurate, they might have called it the land of chicken and eggs. Ever since the late 90s, chicken consumption here has been on the rise, peaking at 38 kilos of chicken meat per person per year. Second only to the Americans. Most of those chickens are processed in one of six slaughterhouses, working around the clock to satisfy our growing appetite for shawarma, shishlik, and the occasional chicken soup. All this sustains a flourishing 4.6 billion shekel industry. It's 6 a.m. in a small flat in Tel Aviv. About a dozen radical vegan activists are crammed in the living room. They fill the air with morning breath and smoke from their rolled-up cigarettes. Sasha, the leader, black pants, tight black shirt, stern gaze, is debriefing the group on today's mission, barging into the headquarters of the Egg and Poultry Association, the main organization responsible for our schnitzels and shakshukas. We're going in there with trays full of dead chicks, he explains calmly. As he's talking, some of the activists are busy pouring a few bucket loads of dead chicks onto plain-looking dining hall trays. They collected the carcasses the night before from the dumpsters of the Nordia hatchery, near Natanya. The hatchery sells laying hens, so male chicks are basically useless waste, and they're either put into big plastic bags and, and just tossed away, or else shredded by specialized industrial grinding machines. The activist's plan is to deliver these trays of dead chicks to the offices of the administrators, who are supposedly responsible for their death. Later that morning, the group shows up at the Egg and Poultry Association, in a fancy office building in the center of Tel Aviv. They all cram into the elevator along with their trays, squeeze bottle, fake blood, and a huge sign that reads, The people here are responsible for the final solution of 15,000 chicks daily. Immediately, all hell breaks loose. One secretary tries to lock herself in a side office, but Sasha blocks the door with his foot and barges in with a platter of chicks. What's wrong? he asks. You afraid to look? Here are your victims, the chicks you've thrown in the trash. What do you want from me? one of them shrieks. I don't make any decisions, I'm, I'm just a clerk. Other slightly braver employees confront the intruders. You have blood on your hands. You're an idiot. They go back and forth like this for a while. Meanwhile, a couple of activists manage to break into the CEO's office, and they're trashing it, pouring buckets of dead chicks and squirting fake blood all over his desk. Pretty soon, a plump police officer with a gentle smile arrives on the scene. He peeks in seems a bit anxious and radios in for backup. A few minutes later, four police cops arrive and a whole bunch of grumpy cops sluggishly enter the building. 
this is clearly not terribly exciting for them. The activists refuse to disperse, so the cops handcuff them, drag them out, and whiz them off to the Alcon police station. By the evening, they're all released, back at home, busy planning their next operation. This group is called 269. They're a new vegan organization who thrive on staging shocking operations, sort of the local pita. Like most popular movements, they have a leader and a mascot. First, the leader. Yeah, my name is uh, Sasha Bouchour, the founder of 269 Life. Sasha's, well, an unlikely leader for a radical movement. He's an introvert, even anti-charismatic. For me, it's like uh, this is not the lifestyle that uh, I would choose. I'm a very private person and like, like to keep to myself and stuff, so it's very hard for me to be in such uh, always surrounded with people and, uh, and having uh, space for myself and stuff. So, what would be your chosen lifestyle? Like being in a closed, dark room by myself, being quiet, is something that uh, would be very nice for me. But he soldiers on. For him, only one thing matters: the cause. Sasha wasn't always so dedicated to animal rights. When he was five, he moved to Israel with his mother and sister. His father stayed behind in Moldova. It's a, it was a bummer, you know. It was hard uh, for everybody in my family also. Things were very tense and uh, people in my family started changing. Uh, I didn't really like uh, it here. In Israel, Sasha kept to himself. He hardly had any friends and became a quiet, reclusive kid. After school, he'd spend his afternoons feeding stray neighborhood cats, but... That's more or less where his animal loving ended. His diet at the time, he told me, consisted of two components. Meat and ketchup. One of his favorite dishes was chicken legs. Not the pulke, the, the actual foot. Where you see the actual fingers and stuff. You, know. you can eat that? Yeah, yeah, Russian people like it. One day when he was 16, he noticed a flyer a classmate had pinned to the billboard. It was about animal rights and veganism and... For some reason, he's not really sure why anymore, it caught his attention. He read it and became curious. In fact, he became so curious that he began to skip school and visit dairy farms, hatcheries, and slaughterhouses. Once you see and hear the uh, smells and the, the screaming and the dead and dying animals, it just uh, it becomes much more personal for you. The shock was so big and it uh, gave me a lot of uh, motivation and clarity on the topic. The things that I saw was uh, things that will be with me until I die. It probably won't surprise you to hear that before long, Sasha became a vegetarian, then a vegan and finally an activist. His school attendance plummeted. He joined Anonymous, a local animal rights advocacy group, and stood on street corners for hours trying to put pamphlets in people's hands. Now, remember, Sasha really isn't a people person. So spending entire days trying to talk to strangers, he describes it as hell. Yeah, it, it was awful, you know. Most of the people he tried talking to just ignored him. But others would actually lash out, scream at him. You get to a place uh, which is very dark. You get to a point of so much anger and stuff that uh, just becomes like, quite a disdain. But he kept at it. Ten years, something like this. Ten years. Sasha didn't graduate from high school or go to the army with his fellow classmates. Sidewalk canvassing was the one constant in his life. Day in, day out. And during all of those countless hours of trying mainly futilely to proselytize bystanders, Sasha had plenty of time to contemplate. What I saw uh, was a lot of lacking in terms of uh, the vegan uh, character. We are seen as a weak bunch, like a bunch of hippies. It's a very weak uh, image. A different approach began forming in his mind. Ballsy plans that would get noticed, that would shake people out of their apathy. He talked to his fellow activists, but they shot him down every time. His plans, they seemed too radical and, and dangerous. Ultimately, Sasha decided to quit and start his own operation. But he knew he needed some help. Someone, maybe something who could rally the troops. He was looking for a mascot. So he and two activist friends got in a small Fiat and headed north. Here's one of them, Nikita. We got to the farm, jumped the fence, and started walking around. Most of the calves were very scared and timid. It was almost impossible to snap any good pictures. 
But then we noticed this cute white cat who was really friendly and excited. He let us touch him and play with him. His branding number was 269, and I just said, This is the one. 269 was everything you could ever want from a mascot. He was cute, photogenic, relatable, and most importantly, he had a short and catchy number. Three numbers is a very sexy thing, but when it comes to four numbers, five numbers, it's like much less uh, attractive. Especially if you're planning to brand that number onto your skin. Now that he had a mascot, Sasha was finally ready to stage his first action. The inauguration of the 269 movement took place in October 2012 at Rabin Square in the center of Tel Aviv. Sasha and two other activists, all symbolizing cattle, were penned up in a makeshift barbed wire cage. One by one, they were dragged to center stage, and the digits 269 were branded on their flesh with hot iron. I felt uh, like my skin got ripped off, like uh, the skin uh, stick to the iron and uh, was peeled. Very uncomfortable because like, uh, you can smell the skin boiling. Sasha went home, bandaged his wounds and uploaded the video of the event to YouTube. Almost immediately it went uh, viral and uh, it spread uh, like a uh, wildfire. It got more than 200,000 hits within a couple of weeks. People from all over the world who had seen the clip started to contact Sasha. Other 269 brandings followed in Mexico City, Prague, London, Cape Town, Iowa City, Grosseto, Moscow, Buenos Aires, Krakow, Amsterdam, Bratislava. They all rallied around the same mantra, Free 269. Meanwhile, back in Israel, Sasha's group was making new headlines. On one infamous occasion, Tel Aviv residents woke up to find decapitated heads of cattle atop fountains with red-dyed water. Another public action was staged on Yom Ma'ut, Israel Independence Day, our annual mangal or barbecue day. Two six-niners showed up at a popular picnic spot, set up grills, and started cooking carcasses of cats and dogs. As you can hear, this wasn't going down so well. Children began to cry, their parents got mad, an angry crowd started gathering, and the 269 activists were beaten pretty badly. The police were on the scene within minutes, and without thinking twice, arrested Sasha and his comrades. But maybe their most shocking performance was staged on a busy boulevard in Tel Aviv. One of the 269ers lingered on the sidewalk, as if she was just a regular bystander. She was holding a newborn baby in her arms. Suddenly, four masked men emerged from behind her. One ripped the baby out of her hands, two restrained her, and the fourth tore her shirt open and began violently milking her breasts. Even knowing that this woman is an actress and that the whole thing is staged, somehow doesn't make the tape less disturbing. 269's public displays are hard to stomach. It isn't pleasant to wake up in the morning, walk down to the bus stop, and be greeted by a severed head staring up at you from a pool of blood. But for others, the blow has been more concrete, affecting their livelihood directly. They claim to work for animals. In practice, they are breaking the law, one news anchor concludes before reporting on a series of thefts from chicken coops and dairy farms. Marcus Ben Elias, a dairy farmer from Kibbutz Gezer, showed me a video from his security cameras. 2.30 in the afternoon, two teenage girls approach the gate, clumsily load a calf into the hatchback of their car, and take off. One calf, if I do a quick calculation, costs something like 50 to 80,000 shekels. So say I'm against capitalism. What, am I allowed to go into a bank and steal money? Am I permitted to do this? I don't know, how far do you want to take this? You can't cross this border. Once you cross this border, there's no limit. This is Arnon Oshri, painter of the bee cow. To him, this is all simple. These people are thieves and outlaws. What happened in the Wild West for uh, cattle thieves? They were shot on the place. If somebody will break in and try to steal, he's risking his life. Simple as that. We will not be tolerant to people who is coming to steal. But I will suggest to these people do know the border. Because if you cross it, somebody might get hurt. And it's not just about lost income or stolen property. It's also a matter of personal safety. If you can see uh, uh, pictures in the net of a woman pointing a gun and saying zero tolerance to uh, uh, animal uh, abusers, 
and I guess uh, being a dairy farmer, I'm an animal abuser in their view, and the next step will be a murder. And we know that words can kill, and picture can do the same. Lots of people are horrified by 269's tactics. Even some vegan activists feel such radical measures are alienating the public and inciting hate. But for others, the group is striking a chord. It's attracted adherents from many other countries, including this guy. Sasha Bujura is an inspiration to the people of my country. Yuzi Ozon from Turkey. I believe that in like 200 years, maybe 100 years, Sasha will be taught in schools, like Martin Luther King and other great people in history. There's a Cairo branch, and it's even reached Tehran. These people are like angels on the earth. God bless them. And of course, back home in Israel, thousands of people are still getting tattooed with the 269 logo. And that tattoo has come to represent more than a personal philosophy. It's a kind of proof of membership. See, when you go vegan in Israel, you enter a sort of club. And 269 are sort of the commando elite of this club. Having such a cute mascot doesn't hurt either. But still, many people in Israel see all this as merely a passing trend. So, is veganism really a thing here? Definitely, veganism is a thing in Israel. There is no doubt about it. This is Ori Shavit, prominent food writer, recently turned vegan activist. I never wrote a single word about veganism up to three and a half years ago. And that all I did was to write about food and about trends and about diets and what's going on. So there is no doubt that that something has changed dramatically. Today Israel is supposed to be a leading nation in the world in the percentage of of people who call themselves or, or treat themselves as vegan. Of course we don't know exactly what everyone eats. Well actually we kind of do. Israel's Central Bureau of Statistics keeps incredibly detailed charts of our total food consumption. Remember that chicken gold era I told you about in the beginning? Well, in recent years, our chicken cravings seem to have tapered off. 2012 actually saw a 4% drop in chicken meat consumption. And it seems that this trend is true of other animal-derived food products. At the same time, the market for vegan staples like almond milk and soy cheese is booming. Vegans see all this as early signs of greater change. Dairy farmers like Arnon and Markus and many other experts don't contest those statistics. But they disagree on the causes, blaming it all on the recession and pointing to a general dip in spending. A recent national poll might suggest that they're right. It estimates that only 2% of the population are vegan. In Tel Aviv, generally seen as the hub of Israeli veganism, their estimates go down to 1%. Other surveys put that number higher, up to 5%. Whatever its actual reach, veganism has definitely entered the conversation here in a pretty big way tagging itself on to a long list of contentious topics. Meanwhile, totally oblivious to the war raged in his name, 269, the calf 269, who's not really a calf anymore, more like a huge bull, is spending his days in leisure. A few days before he was due to be slaughtered, 269 was stolen or liberated, depending on how you look at all of this, by terrorists or animal-loving activists. Again, depending on how you see the whole thing. He now lives a peaceful, incognito life noshing on the grass in an undisclosed location. As for his brothers and sisters, I think it's safe to assume that they've long since found themselves in our pitas. That was Yochai Meital. Yochai is one of the producers of our show. Our next story takes us far away from the 269 demonstrations. Very far. I spent the past year living in Madison, Wisconsin. Now, as you can imagine, there weren't too many Israelis around. Polar vortex? Not really our thing. So when it turned out that my parents' friend Zev had a daughter and son-in-law who lived nearby, I called them up and they invited me over for lunch. These kinds of meals with Israelis living abroad usually follow a pretty similar pattern. First we try to figure out who we know in common, Then we eat and have a heated conversation about Israeli politics. Next, some inevitable jokes about how bad American hummus is and how everybody misses Bamba. And finally, weather comparisons. Always the weather comparisons. I usually budget two hours, end up staying three, and leave feeling a little bit homesick. But my visit with Dubi Ayalon and his family didn't follow that pattern. Not even close. 
get to Doobies, you head about 40 miles northwest of Madison. Once the houses disappear and are replaced with endless cornfields and farms with red barns and silvery silos, you reach Plain. Plain, Wisconsin. Population, 773. Its name seems to fit it just right. Plain's got a Culver's, which is like the local McDonald's, a gas station, post office, single row of stores, and that's basically it. Now, let's keep on going. About five miles north of Plain, literally in the middle of nowhere, there's a purple farmhouse and a silo with a big Star of David in the middle. They say Israelis are everywhere, but this is really the last place you'd think you'd find one. Before we jump into the story, a quick warning. Duby likes to swear. A lot. We haven't bleeped anything out, so if you're listening with little kids or just sensitive to that, you might want to skip this one. Anyway, Act 2, Hello Buffalo. My name is Duby. I am now 61. Fuck, I'm old. 61. Avinu Malkeinu Choneinu Aneinu I came from the Holy Land right into the Holy Shit. I live in the middle of nowhere, somewhere in Wisconsin, and I'm the first Israeli redneck living in the U.S. Duby spends his days milking water buffaloes. That a fucking bloody redneck. Standing in a bloody barn, freezing to death because of it's fucking cold outside, and milking buffaloes. Okay, it's a bigger deal. But never mind, I mean, fuck it. Maybe it's been a while since your last visit to the zoo. So, a quick refresher water buffaloes. Imagine a cow, a really large cow. Now add big horns curling backward, a dark brown or black hairy coat, and huge, powerful muscles. Some of Duby's buffaloes are out in the snow, calmly roaming around, jets of frozen air coming out of their nostrils. But most of them are huddled together at the end of the barn, barely moving, just staring skeptically right at us. There's something majestic about them, Unlike cows, they're basically wild, and do whatever they want. In Italy, buffalo farms are a dime a dozen, and they're huge, with hundreds of animals. That's where all that buffalo mozzarella comes from. But in America, it never really caught on. So, as far as he knows, Duby, with his herd of 30, is actually the largest milking buffalo farm in the country. At the end of every week, a pickup truck from the Cedar Grove Cheese Company pulls up beside his barn and sucks up all the milk he's collected. At the height of the milking season, that's roughly 125 gallons, which go to the dairy company for about $12 a gallon, or eight times more than a gallon of cow's milk. Do you like buffalo milk? I like the milk, I don't eat the cheese. Why? Yuck. What is the difference between buffalo milk and regular milk? Ah, It's the same difference between gold and shit. (laughs) Simple as that. Buffalo milk is very rich. It's a very tasty milk. The smell is a little bit different. And it's healthier, way healthier than uh, cow's milk. So there's a difference between shit and gold. Now the farmers around me will kill me because of this sentence. (laughs) First snow of the season started this morning. And the wind is blowing. It's fucking cold. It's fucking cold. Hey, buffalo. Hello, buffalo. Hey, buffalo. To call this a family operation wouldn't quite do it justice. It's more like a doobie operation. He gets up at 4.30 a.m. in the Wisconsin winters and works by himself. Milking buffaloes is hard. And looking at Duby, you can tell. His hands are all cracked and craggy. He's short and wiry. 
you can see he's super tough. This is a new one. Just born last night. Come Chiquita. Hey Chiquita. Hey Buffalo. It's okay little one. It's okay. Yeah, my day begins with the Hebrew prey. It's a beautiful song. And then the buffaloes are coming into the barn. Oh, you sing mm-hmm. to them? That, that brings them in? Yeah, yeah. This song brings them in. Not because of my beautiful voice, but because they know that after the song there are treats. So like God, basically. <laughs> I will say nothing about it. So with this song they are coming to the barn, milking, chores. If I'm lucky, I'm back home around 10, 10.30 at night. That's my day. Routine, sweet routine. The farm is a very small farm, 50-something acres, pretty much isolated from the environment. We are in the middle of nowhere. My wife came with the idea of a water buffalo. I started to like research it and I fell in love with this animal. Why? It's gentle in one hand, it's powerful in the other hand. There is nothing to say. I love my buffaloes. As simple as that. Unlike cows are not dumb. They have some kind of personality. And it's a challenge because you cannot control them. You need to seduce them, not to control them. I used to be a control freak. I cannot be a control freak here. As simple as that. I mean, it doesn't work. You are not the king of the world. You are part of it. I used to you know, shoot orders, make sure that this will happen by tomorrow morning. And now I'm being controlled by around 30 buffaloes that they can do whatever the buffalo wish to do. And I'm part of them. When I'm milking in the milking season, I smell like buffalo, sometimes I behave like buffalo. So, that's farming. Anyhow. Before he settled here eight years ago, Dubi had a previous life. Those orders that he used to shout, they were in the Israeli army, where Dubi was a lieutenant colonel. I was in the army for 24 years. Yeah, 24 years. Holy crap, that's a lot. I loved the army. The army was a place that I could find my uh, uh, place, and I enjoyed it. Doobie went as far as he could go in the army. After that, he wasn't really ready to part with uniforms altogether, so he joined the police. That lasted for eight months. He left, he says, because he was a terrible cop. He had way too much sympathy for the criminals. And then I went to this uh, prestige, academical institution, the School of Educational Leadership. Wow, what a name. For two years, and then I became a school principal of a, religi- uh, of a regional school in Nahalal. Those kids are nice, but they are boring, as my kid would say. Nice kids, really obsessed about their degrees and bullshit like this. I mean, you're a kid, you see what I mean? Be creative, be mean, be something. I got bored, so I resigned and went to a vocational school of bad kids. I liked it, I must say, I liked it. They were challenging, they were everything beside routine. Uh, One of my kids was uh, uh, brought to trial because of uh, killing someone. 
uh, another one uh, uh, came up to be a drug dealer. And, and, and they were, weren't uh, interested in, in learning, and you needed to uh, come to the point that you will be respected by them, not because of what you are, but because of who you are. They will respect you because of what you are doing, how you behave. Can they trust you? But then I made a mistake. On a field trip, Dubi went to check in on some particularly rowdy kids. No sooner did he walk in than one of them locked the door behind him. So all of them, Dubi and the loud kids, were stuck in there together. Then, well, as Dubi says, he kicked the shit out of the ringleader. And uh, that's some kind of mistake that you don't do. Big mistake. Uh, something that shouldn't happen, but it happened. So I resigned. I mean, I, I couldn't forgive myself because of it. After you are kicking the, uh, 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 beating one of the students, you cannot ask the other students to uh, be uh, not to use violent. It's a bad joke. You should be a role model. And so I, 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 I just resigned, and uh, then was a the decision to move to the. United States and, and, you know, start again from scratch. And that's it. We ended here. When he first arrived, Duby had very clear opinions about Americans, and especially American farmers. I used to think about a farmer as a redneck, dumb, loud, and arrogance. My neighbor, the heavy-duty religious one, thinks that I belong to the chosen ones. What chosen and what the fuck. <laughs> but it didn't take too long for him to warm up to the other dairy farmers around him. They helped me in a way that this farm wouldn't exist without my neighbors. As simple as that. Everybody around thinks that I'm an idiot milking water buffaloes. You are, you were a lieutenant colonel, you were a school principal, how the fuck are you milking buffaloes? Eh? But it doesn't bother them or it doesn't stop them to help me in a way that sometimes I'm standing aside and saying to myself, we the Israelis are very proud about how a, a, a kind of a, a community we have how much we are helping each other. We have a lot to learn. Let's put it this way, a lot. Hey, Buffalo. Hello, Buffalo. The smell is the smell of buffalo manure. And the tick that you are hearing is an electric fence. So they will stay. This is Tikita. Last night, sometime last night, she cared after giving me hard time till it happened. Look at her orders. Holy crap, how much milk you have there. Nice. Some of them has Hebrew names. All the ones that were born here has Hebrew names. The one in the left, her name is Pussy. The big one behind her, the brown one, her name is Chiquita. The one in the other side, her name is Enshem, next to her Nechama, next to her broken horns. Hey! And uh, what was it like uh, leaving Israel for you? The hardest thing about leaving Israel was leaving my kids there. All the rest uh, I could handle. Dubi has four children. The youngest Erez came with him to plane. But his three older daughters from his first marriage, all in their 20s then, stayed in Israel. They're constantly emailing and whatsapping, but they say it's rough. The biggest challenge for them wasn't that he now lived halfway around the world. It was that he was changing, becoming a new person. I mean, books are nice. I don't have the time to read. I lost the 
passion to read. My daughters got pissed because it's resemble the change in their fathers from the person that was a book maniac, obsessive reader. He became to be a redneck. So they don't like it. I don't think my personality changed, my uh, uh, behavior changed. I uh, 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 used to think that if I will look tough, talk tough, it will make me tough. I'm the same lamb that I'm today. There's no, there's only like custom. Hey, oh five. Hey, oh five. Let's stand inside. Wah, 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 wah. Fuck, it is cold. Hey, buffalo. What does it feel like to be so far away from home? I'm not a part of this society 100%, and I'm not anymore a part of the Israeli society 100%. So when I'm coming to Israel, for example, the uh, uh, landscape, the views, the, the, the smell, the food, is part of my childhood and being a grown-up. But the other thing around it drives me nuts. So I'm coming here. When I'm coming here, I'm missing the parts that are in Israel. I'm not comfortable 100% in both places. I'm still a stranger, and I believe I will be a stranger all my life here. And Israel is still my homeland in a way that I cannot explain. It's something in your feelings. <laughs> so, my truck looks like a piece of shit. And my house, I used to have a bigger house, a nicer house in a nicer neighborhood. Am I less happy? No, I'm happy here. I'm just fucking happy. I'm fucking singing every morning. Do you sing every morning? No. Oh, exactly. Hello, so, Hello, that's it. Hey, Buffalo. Hello, Buffalo. Coming up, a bovine entrepreneur is put out of business by a new, radical idea. Monotheism. Jonathan Goldstein brings us this story. If you made it past Dubi, you're probably okay with some off-color language. But just so you know, here and there Jonathan uses a word which would be bleeped on the radio. Act 3, Gomer and Sons. After 40 intense days with God, Moses descended Mount Sinai, his nerves shot. No sooner had he reached the base of the mountain than he heard music coming from a nearby clearing. Peering through the trees, Moses saw the children of Israel praying to what appeared to be a crudely sculpted golden calf. They danced and pranced, flounced, frisked, strutted and swaggered, all hopped up on idol worship. Cranky by disposition, but made even more irritable by lack of sleep, Moses began to weep tears of anger. Even the people he trusted the wise, loyal ones, tapping their feet and snapping their fingers like it was a hootenanny. Golden calves were all the rage, 
but Moses had warned them before he left. I'll be down in a jiff, he had said, so don't start praying until I get back. Seeing their lurid dance, Moses took the tablets he was carrying, bearing commandments that, among other things, commanded them to worship no other god but God-God, and dropped them to the ground. Though Moses could get angrier than just about anyone besides God, he dropped the tablets, not in his wrath. And for Moses, this was odd, as he ate, spoke, slept, and even snored in his wrath. The man could even whistle a tune in his wrath, but when he let the tablets fall to the earth, he did it like an overburdened little kid who just didn't care anymore. That was when Moses was at his scariest, when he was all quiet and holding back. And so, when with tightly closed eyes and a warble in his voice, he instructed the idol-worshipping children of Israel to burn the calf, grind it to powder, mix the powder with water, and drink it, they did not ask, Can gold burn? Or, Can gold be drunk? as they did not want to make Moses any angrier than he already was. Zero commandments for you, he repeated quietly under his breath. You would think that that would spell the end for golden calves, but this was not the case. There was still one man holding out hope, a man who thought monotheism just another fad. And this man's name was Gomer, and he was the largest golden calf dealer in the Sinai region. And much to his son Ian's embarrassment, he had a real never-say-die attitude. They'll come around, Gomer said to his son after the commandment episode. An invisible god that no one except Moses can see? Oh, and he's also got a temper problem. Likes to make threats and burn bushes. How do you even begin to pray to someone like that? I don't want to pray like a frightened mouse. I want to pray as one equal to another. And all those laws, don't wear this cloth with that cloth, don't let this cattle graze with that cattle, all that red tape, no, not for me. But the God of Moses did make a splash with a great many people. When Moses got going, waving his staff around while yelling bloody murder, curing leprosy and transforming his rod into a snake, he made a pretty persuasive case. People became fired up on New God and began forming mobs of protest in front of Gomer's showroom. But still, Gomer was undeterred. His confidence wasn't for nothing. After all, Ian's father was an innovator. When he got into the business, it was strictly golden cows, full-grown, But Gomer saw that as homes began to get smaller, there was a need for an idol that could fit more neatly into a corner, something you could drape a caftan over and prop your feet on when you weren't worshipping. And thus, the mini-cow, or calf, was born. What makes the god of Moses better than my calves? Gomer asked. What can he do that they can't? Speak in that sonorous voice that makes you feel like you just swallowed your own tonsils? Bullcrap. That's not being a god. That's just being pushy. The calf is a more laid-back cud-chewing lord. He minds his own business and only steps in in a pinch. Remember when I prayed for the SOB selling silver calves next door to get dropsy? And did he not get dropsy? All praise the golden bovine whose golden teats nourish us with invisible golden milk. Gomer stopped his pantomime of teat squeezing and looked at his son to see if he was making an impression. But you heard Moses talk on the mountain, Ian said, the deep, grumbly voice, the water into blood. It gave everyone the same feeling. We all said so, the tingling in the chest, the rattling of the rib cage. You said you felt it too. You know me, Gomer said. I don't want to hurt feelings. If someone gets excited, I get excited too. But someone does a few magic tricks and you renounce everything you ever stood for? No, I was born a golden calf man, and I shall die a golden calf man. Integrity. It's the way my daddy raised me. And, if I'm not mistaken, it's how I raised you. Actually, Gomer had raised him to be cheap, suspicious, and sneaky. Ian didn't know where integrity fit in. They'll come around, Gomer maintained. But as the days went by, and the angry calf-hating crowd grew in number, Gomer saw that people were not coming around. What we need, he said, is a battle plan. And so, 
Gomer invited over his brothers. A bigger bunch of shysters, hoodwinkers, and chicanerous pettifoggers there never was. Ian hated when they all got together. In five minutes, the whole house smelled of farts, and his cheeks were pinched black and blue. Ian, wanting to avoid the ordeal of their visit, offered to voyage out to purchase dried fruit. But Gomer told him to stay put. I have a whole warehouse full of the golden fuckers, said Gomer, for this was the way he talked when he was with his brothers. It was fucker this and fucking fuckballs that. We have to tactically leverage this, said brother number one. We have to rebrand, added brother number two. When they were all together, they became one big fat we. Ian would try to get into the spirit of it and we along with them, but his we's always got stuck in his throat. The name Golden Calf scares people, said brother number three gravely. We could start calling them festive cows. But Golden Calf is a name the public knows, Gomer reminded them. We have to distance ourselves from all that, said brother number one. We can sell cow clothes, dress them up in the latest styles, tunics, prayer shawls, princess golden cow for girls, slap a beard on the SOB and you've got a Moses cow. We'll call him Mooses. It's still a golden calf, said Ian. It's just different names for what it is. An idol. Just another name, said brother number two. Look at the weeping willow. Would you seek its shade were it called an overflowing barf bucket bush? Then Ian felt his cheek clamped, twisted, pulled, and finally snapped back into place. Jackass, his uncle said with affection. During the ten plagues, if the brothers had lived in Egypt, they'd have seen each plague as a distinct business opportunity. Cursed darkness? Let's make babies night. Hail mixed with fire? Refreshing joy nuggets and fun-time ouchie bolts. Can't we just melt them down and get into a new business? asked Ian. What kind of new business? brother number one asked, pinching his cheek with warmth. Something a little less contentious, said Ian. For Gomer and his brothers, the case was closed, but Ian still worried. When he'd go outside to try and calm the agitated crowd, he'd end up learning a lot about New God. New God had made man in his own image, and his resume was really impressive. Divided the heavens from the earth, made man from the dust, created the universe. The list went on and on. What can your God do, the crowd demanded. Never any good under the gun, Ian stuttered and backpedaled. You can polish him, he said, and lean against him too. The golden calf is strictly local, said an intense and scholarly-looking young man named Rodney. But your lord, said Ian, what do you call him? God? You mustn't even speak his actual name, interrupted Rodney. He doesn't like it. So we've invented nicknames for him, such as he who will kill you, he who will crush you, and he who will set you on fire and douse the flames with the blood of those you love. You really have to be careful, because he hears all and sees all. Ian felt new God's gaze upon him all the time now, especially when he was lying in bed. He was scared of this new God and sometimes even believed he could smell him. When there was burning in the air, he pictured the angry smoke escaping New God's ears. He worried that every little thing he did, every word that escaped his lips, was ticking off New God in some way. It was too much to bear. The consummate God is a forgiving God, they said on the street. Still, he was scared, for himself and for his father. And then the rioting began. No more idols, they chanted. Our God trumps all gods. Gomer remained unimpressed. For such a powerful God, he said, invisible God is surprisingly thin-skinned. 
Ours, said Ian, is a jealous god. Gomer was struck silent by his son's words. He stared at Ian a good long time. As a rule, Gomer was never nonplussed, but his son's words, they nonplussed him. I see, Gomer said, nervously massaging coins through the thin leather of his money pouch. So now he's your god. There's no choice, Ian said. He's taking over. I don't get it, said Gomer. When you were little, you adored the god of your father. Gomer reached over and pinched his son's cheek with sadness. What happened? he asked. He's omnipotent, said Ian, using a word he just learned from Rodney. He can outfight, outthink, and outrace any god you throw at him. Look, said Gomer, I'll get my brothers back in here, and we'll cook up a new god, newer than new god. We'll call him Omnipotent Plus One. This is embarrassing, Ian said. It's also dangerous. I didn't realize I was embarrassing you, Gomer said, his pinching fingers limp. That night, Gomer remained in the showroom, pacing from calf to calf, ruminating. What is there for a father to pass down to a son, Gomer wondered, if not his god? He did not like this new god. He was uncanny, grandiose, and bloodthirsty. But Gomer could also sense that he might actually have staying power. And so, the very next day, he brought in the alchemists with their enormous black cauldrons, He knew it would likely mean taking a tremendous beating on the value, and he knew it would mean having to shout his brothers down. But Gomer vowed that every last golden hawk and udder would be melted. His new idea was to remold the gold into long, thin wands with pointing little index fingers at the tip. We'll market them as commandment pointers, said Gomer to his brothers, to help you read the word of God. You know, God, God. His brothers mulled it over and after a long silence they spoke. Give the people what they want, said brother number one, who knew when to stand down. Gold is gold, said brother number two. Yep, said brother number three distractedly, for in his mind he was already on to a dozen other hog swindles. Ian watched the calves melt, their little calf faces poking out of the pots, looking at him. They made him feel almost as guilty as the sight of his father's face, which was wet and glowing in the heat of the showroom. When he was a child, Ian could pray so hard, harder than anyone he knew. It was his thing. He'd squint his eyes and scrunch up his face. He'd look like he was going to burst a blood vessel, his hands and fists, hoping, willing the world to be a certain way, for the house to quiet down, for good things to happen, for Gomer to notice what a good prayer he was. When he would finish praying and he'd look around, and the world was pretty much the way it had always been, the one thing he knew he could rely on was that the calf was keeping count, giving out points for effort. At least the calf knew how hard he was trying. New God made sense to him, but the calf made sense to his heart. It was such a part of his childhood, like the smell of certain foods or the tunes his father whistled when they took long walks together. As the years wore on, Ian would often invite Gomer to come and pray with him to new God, and Gomer would tag along and pray. But Ian could always tell his father was just doing it to make him happy. When Gomer finally died, it was at a ripe old age. And when Ian prayed for him, prayed for his safe passage in the hereafter, Inevitably, more often than not, it was the calf that he saw. Please don't think of the calf, he'd say to himself as he prayed. But the harder he prayed and thought about trying not to think about the calf, the more the calf would enter his thoughts and prayers. After some years had passed, Ian eventually got used to the intrusions and just stopped trying to fight them. In his mind, he imagined his golden man-headed cow, or cow-headed man, and he just prayed the best that he could. 
Jonathan Goldstein is the host of the radio show and podcast Wiretap. This story comes from his book, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Bible. If you've enjoyed today's episode, give us some social media love. Facebook, Twitter, all under Israel Story. You can find all our previous English episodes at tabletmag.com or on iTunes and SoundCloud. And of course, if you speak Hebrew, tune in to our Hebrew episodes. Our site is israelstory.org where you can hear everything from the very beginning. And as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. So post on our Facebook page or email us at contact at israelstory.org. For music and mixing help on today's episode, a big thanks to Jonathan Gruber, Annie Kelsey, and Nathan Bowles. Thanks also to Benny Becker, Daniel Estrin, Karen Carlson, Michal Davis, Michal Ayalon, and Eyal Raz. Amishi Harman and the Israel Story staff includes Yochai Metal, Roi Gilron, Shai Satra, Nava Winkler, and Maya Kosover. Julie Subrin's our executive producer. Join us next episode, the very last episode of our first season. And meanwhile, yalla bye.